Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Hello, I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to be talking again today about the Kingdom of God. We started a series on the Torah, which, of course, means law. So we started a series on law, which, of course, begins with natural law, because it is natural law in which all law is created. In other words, all legal systems are created based upon the preexistence of natural law which is also defined as right reason and divine will. There was a time when almost everybody believed in God in some sense or another. When you say believed in God, in their idea there was some sort of creator and God uh, in the universe that uh, was the divine intelligence that made everything happen. Now, Admittedly, the different images of God that were created in the minds of all the different people, that varies quite a bit. But supposedly, uh, Abraham, Moses, believed in a God by the name of Yahweh. It wasn't really his name, but it was what he gave people as his name, which actually just means the existing one. So, supposedly... We can either believe it or not believe it. Moses was listening to the manifestation of the actual existing God, which would be the source of right reason and the source of divine will, or the will of God. All these things are related to the law of nature. Now, since that time, and the time where Moses eventually wrote down the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, written by Moses. People have interpreted those texts to mean all kinds of things, which is why there are 40,000 or more Christian denominations. Uh, There are numerous different Jewish denominations, numerous different interpretations of what the Torah said, and we've given as an example just a couple of those. You know, you had the Zealots, and you had the Pharisees, and you had the Sadducees, and you had the Essenes. Those are the common larger groups that we know of at the time of Jesus Christ. There are lots of different factions even within those groups, and as an example, the Essenes didn't even call themselves Essenes. It just became kind of a category of Jews who did things like the Essenes. And we've talked about the Essenes before, but the Essenes read the same Torah that the Pharisees read, the same Torah that the Sadducees may have read. I say may have read because all the Sadducees weren't reading the Torah. And of course, the Zealots, who we call the Zealots, were reading uh, the Torah. And they all came to different conclusions as to what it meant. And what it meant to follow God or to practice religion. The Bible talks about pure religion, which is a religion unspotted by the world, using the word that means constitutional order or system of government, that consisted of how they took care of the widows and orphans in needy of society. 
That's what religion was. And if you went to the religious temples of Rome, they were handing out free bread in the, to the needy, helping the needy, helping the people who fell on hard times who were members of their temples, at least at the time of Christ, at the time of Augustus Caesar, which was pretty much before Christ. He was already at the end of his first reign as emperor because uh, he was at the end of his life, about the time that Jesus is born. And uh, he was already on the downhill side of that. And we've we've talked about his place in history and the fact that he was called the Son of God, and then all of a sudden these Jews come along and they're calling Jesus the Son of God, and he was called the Savior, and all of a sudden these Jews come along and they're they're calling this Jesus guy the Savior. And so that is setting up a conflict between Rome and the Jews. But of course we also know there was a group of Jews that said they had no king but Caesar and they opposed Jesus. They didn't like Jesus. They didn't like what Jesus had to say. They wanted to put an end to Jesus and get him crucified and they wanted Rome to do it for them. But Rome found Jesus innocent. They, they washed their hands of even judging Jesus and evidently finally made a determination that Jesus Christ was the legitimate king of the Jews and made a royal proclamation. According to his rank at that time, Pontius Pilate made a royal proclamation in three languages that this is the king of the Jews. It wasn't, he was not mocking Jesus. He actually believed that Jesus was the king of Judea, the citizens of Judea. And why they say the Jews, we translate it Jews, but it actually means the citizens of Judea. Because the citizens of Judea were all over the Pax Romana, all over the Roman Empire. They were in Rome, they were in Corinth, they were in Ephesus, they were all over the place. But you would say, I'm a citizen of Judea. The king of Judea is my king. Well, of course, originally the king of Judea was Herod. He was actually one of the first kings of Judea under the Roman occupation. He wasn't the first, but he was one of the first. And certainly one of the first under the Roman occupation when Rome had an emperor, which was Augustus which celebrated the fact that he was the son of God every year. And people who were citizens of Rome would go and make a sacrifice at the temple professing Augustus Caesar, or whatever Caesar, was the son of God. And he was counted as the son of God so that he could appoint other gods throughout the empire. So, what what is this appointing other gods throughout the empire? <laughs> what what does that look like? What does that mean? Well, that he was appointing judges throughout the empire that would occupy the imperial courts of Rome. And if you committed a crime against the imperial courts of Rome, you would be punished by those judges of those courts which were appointed 
by Caesar. Uh, either Augustus Caesar or later on uh, at the time of early Christendom by Tiberius and and uh, Caligula or uh, Claudius. These are the different emperors and, and eventually Nero uh, that were in reigning in Rome and therefore over the Pax Romana, therefore over the imperial courts of Rome throughout the Roman Empire. When Jesus was dragged to the court of Pontius Pilate, to be tried by Pontius Pilate, Jesus says, my kingdom's not of this world. As he was standing in the court of Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate was going to sit in the judgment seat as the Theos, as the God of that court, to rule whether Jesus was guilty or innocent. But Jesus says, my kingdom's not of this court of this constitutional order and system of government. And Pontius Pilate is pondering this and washes his hands, which if you understand Roman law meant, I ain't got no jurisdiction here. I don't have any jurisdiction over Jesus Christ to rule if he is the Christ or not the Christ. If he is the king of Judea, and therefore the son of God of Judea, you know, because I'm, I don't have jurisdiction. And he didn't have jurisdiction for a long story, which we've, we've told many times of, that goes back to Pompey and Aristobulus and Hyrcanus and why Rome was actually there in Judea. And the basic reason that Rome had a right to be in Judea was because it was invited to determine who was the rightful king of Judea. Well, then the question comes up, what's Judea? (laughs) Uh, Where does that have any precedent in the law of nations, which is us naturale, uh, or us uh, gentia, which is the law of nations, Us naturale is the law of nature, and supposedly the law of nations is connected to the law of nature. Because it goes, the law of nations means that each individual nation can have their statutes, their legal system within each of those nations, because the people come together somehow or other and form these statutes. And other nations recognize those statutes in in the jurisdiction of those countries. And the, the whole how they recognize that is all tied up in what they call uh, the law of nations. But the law of nations, all those nations, are all in in the natural law. Well, now we see a movement, a very strong movement. We've seen it. You know, you can go way back to Woodrow Wilson and the League of Nations and and then with uh, uh, other uh, presidents who've come along and wanted to form a new order, a one world government. And there's a certain backlash to that people don't. And that's called nationalism. We just heard on the news where people are painting things on a church because they're against Christian nationalism. And 
So there's this conflict, but people don't even understand what nationalism is, what the law of nations is, what the law of God is. You know, I actually heard somebody interviewing, uh, talking about illegal aliens. And, well, they're not really illegal aliens, uh, because they have claimed asylum in the United States, and they ha- there's a provision, if you claim asylum, they can wait for their court date in the United States. Well, they are illegal aliens if they have no rightful claim to asylum in the United States. So they're just saying, yeah, we, we're, we need asylum because we're being persecuted in our country. And that there's no basis to that. It's not true. It's a lie. Then their claim, which is, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure penalty of perjury, is false and therefore they are illegal. They just haven't been declared illegal by a court. But they are illegal from the moment they're illegal. The, the moment they lied on their affidavit, they're illegal <laughs> based on the laws of the United States. So that that interviewer, which is from the Young Turks, was, you know, as she was interviewing Prager, uh, Prager U, she was the only one who, you know, she said she would debate them. And then, of course, she didn't really debate them. She was just her talking points. And I thought he did actually a very poor job of pointing this out. Uh, He seemed a little bit flustered more than usual, but uh, she was constantly talking over him. Uh, Speaking of that, you know, if if people want to be interviewed by me or want to interview me, we can do that. And, And maybe in the process of doing that, I'll get better and better at that being interviewed and having that conversation with other people. Just get a hold of us and we'll uh, we'll try to set up interview. We'll even put it on YouTube. But one of the things I'm going to cover today, a little bit touch on, is the fact that uh, we're going to talk about the Constitution and constitutionalists and, and that law, because the Constitution is a law. But we're also going to talk about the fourth branch of government, which most people are absolutely oblivious to, which is obvious once we get through this program. Hopefully it will be obvious to you. <laughs> And uh, what you should be doing if you are really seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Because most people are not really seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And they're not seeking uh, what Christ came to tell us to seek. They're just not doing it. And so we need to take a look at what Christ was doing, what Christ was saying... What the early church was doing, what the early church was saying, and why they said it, and why the government of Rome found it necessary to persecute Christians. Well, of course, we know that at least starts with the fact that they said that Jesus was the Son of God, and Romans said that Caesar was the Son of God. And that Christians said that Jesus was their Savior, and Rome said... Now, Caesar is our savior. So, there's this conflict. But, again, Christians could say, legitimately, there is another king, one Jesus. And they were actually operating in a government, which the introduction of Wycliffe refers to as the government of the people, for the people, and by the people. In which the people were the fourth branch of government. Of God. <laughs> so, the, so it, how many branches of government are there in the kingdom of God? 
Because Jesus talks about branches. He talks about branches that are cut off and thrown into the fire. And branches that are grafted in. And so, he was talking about branches of the kingdom of God. So, how many branches of the kingdom of God is there? Or are there? Is there multiple? Is there is there three branches of government in the kingdom of God? Is there four branches of government in the kingdom of God? Is there... 144,000 branches in the kingdom of God. Well, it all depends on what you mean by branches, all what you mean by government, and all what you mean by the kingdom of God. <laughs> so we're going to try to define these terms a little bit and come to some kind of conclusion about it. And uh, so this is a part of our series on Torah. If you go to Preparing You, you can look up the word Torah in the search engine at preparingyou.com. And we have a page there on tour. It's kind of brief. I'll probably add to it. But I have added the first two recordings of our series on law. Basically, we start with the Torah. Because that's one of the oldest books on law. Which is why you, you can go to the Supreme Court and you see uh, in the upper part of the building as you're walking up the steps, there's this relief of Moses getting the Ten Commandments. And so they put that there because that's the the temple of law in the United States at the Supreme Court. And all those those judges in the Supreme Court, they're the gods of the Supreme Court. They're the ruling judges of the Supreme Court. We've explained that. The word God in the Greek and the word God in the Hebrew means ruling judge. You know, it's theos in in the Greek. Uh, and that really means the ruling judge. You would actually address judges in the court as theos. Because he was the god of that court. He was the ruling judge of that court. Which is why Paul says there are gods many. And he even says there are men who say they are gods, but are not. There, there are men who say they have the right to judge, and they don't. And, of course, Pontius Pilate thought he had a right to judge Jesus, but he didn't. But fortunate for him, he recognized that he didn't and washed his hands of the case. So, you're not going to get this from most of your preachers out there, but most of your preachers out there, all these 40,000 denominations or rabbis out there, and I don't know how many denominations of Judaism there is, or maybe your Buddhists out there, Of course, Buddha uses somewhat different terminology than Jesus did, but we find quotes of Buddha that are almost identical to the quotes of Jesus Christ. And I'm not suggesting by any means that Jesus is quoting Buddha, because Buddha was 400 years before. But there were differences between Buddha and Jesus, and that's worth seeing, but that's not the topic of today, so we won't go into that. I'm sure you can look up and find uh, our recordings and and pages on that at Preparing You, so you can take a look at that. But the point is, all these religions today are all based on what you think about God, but religion, for thousands of years, was how you took care of the needy of your society. That's, it. you know, in, in the Greek, the word for religion is threskia, or the word commonly translated religion in you know, religion, religiere comes from a Latin word, but what we see today, the English word religion, if you're translating a Greek text, you're translated in, in 
from the word threskia. And threskia is specifically what you do. It's not what you think. Now, obviously, what you think is going to determine what you do, but threskia means what you do. And, of course, Jesus says it's not what you say, it's not what you think you believe, but it's actually what you do. Because that's going to tell us whether you really believe in Jesus or not. Even being born again, if you read a couple verses after that, they're telling you, if you're doing this stuff over here, you're not born again. So, you know, people say, well, I was born again on this date, and they, they confirm it, and they say it, and they repeat it. But they're still doing the stuff that John 3 says, if you're doing this stuff, you're not born again. And so, you can go and tell me all you want, but if you're not doing the will of the Father, that's evidence. Prima facie evidence that you're not really born again. And I, I, I'm not interested in picking on you about that. The only reason I'm pointing that out is so that you can take a look at the idea that you're born again and see if there isn't need for repentance. Because there may still be need for repentance to truly be born again. You may be stuck in the birth canal somewhere. And vanity is is one of the things that gets you stuck behind the eight balls. Stuck uh, and cuts you off from the Holy Spirit. So anyway, if you, if you didn't get to hear the first couple of shows, and we'll put some others up there eventually on the Torah page. But this is all part of this series on law. And if we're going to be talking about law, we're going to have to talk about the Constitution. If we're going to talk about the Constitution, we're going to end up talking about constitutionalists. And uh, I noticed that I had a page on constitutional. And on it I was quoting uh, Chris Ann Hall. Because she's, she's a constitutionalist. Very fervent, very diligent, very well studied. Uh, person on the Constitution, but I disagree with some of her conclusions. But she's right about a lot of things, and I admire her courage and her steadfastness. So if I say anything that's contradictory to Chris Ann Hall, I, I'm not picking on her. Uh, I'd be glad to have her on the show someday if she wanted to have an interview. But I noticed that the video that I had up of Chris Ann Hall on the Constitutional page was no longer... Uh, you know, it was a broken link. Uh, it had been taken down evidently by YouTube. And so, you know, what I had put up there to give a, you know, a sampling of Chris Ann Hall's, uh, speaking was gone. So I removed the whole thing and I just didn't have time to put another one up. But it really isn't about Chris Ann Hall, but she is kind of a primary example of a constitutionalist. She's very much in favor of the Constitution, but I say the Constitution is not your salvation. I have said many times that I was a constitutionalist until I actually read it. But of course, when I read it, I read it in the context of what I already knew about the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God. And I saw pitfalls. And then, of course, I read, you know, the anti-federalist papers and all that stuff. And we've written a whole book on the subject now. But that's what we're going to talk about today is constitutionalists and those pitfalls that we were warned about back in 1770s and 80s when we returned to Keys of the Kingdom.
Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. And so we're talking about law. So therefore, we're going to talk about the Constitution because the Constitution is law. The Constitution, I mean, it's a set, it's almost like bylaws of a corporation. You know, it says, you know, who's a part of it and, you know, what senators do, what congressmen do, what their duties are, what their limitations are, uh, what they're supposed to be doing to function in this corporate government. Of the people, for the people, and by the people. But it's a corporate government supposedly for the people, and of the people, and by the people. But who's the people? <laughs> because uh, it's very clear, and according to the gods of the Constitution, which is the Supreme Court, the ruling judges of the Supreme Court, rule what the Constitution means. That's what the, That's their job. That if, you know, they, they don't, Discuss traffic tickets, generally speaking. They're not a part of the legal system. Uh, they're not in, enforcing, you know, local ordinances, fire ordinances, or, uh, you know, uh, littering ordinances in the different states or whatever. They're, they're dealing with the constitutional issues, which is limited to constitutional authority. Now, could the constitutional authority have changed... Since the guys who originally signed the Constitution signed the Constitution at the bottom. Because actually those guys who signed it at the bottom, they didn't create the government. They just signed, this is, this is the corporate charter for the United States federal government that we're creating. It, it didn't have any authority in the states yet because the states hadn't ratified it. And they had agreements as to how they could ratify it already between them. So, I mean, they could they could violate that original agreement and ratify it in a different way than they had already agreed to. But then they would be illegally doing it. <laughs> but, but, you know, who's going to arrest them? <laughs> so... The, the point is, is, and understanding all this helps put it in perspective. So, I mean... Let's do a quick outline of law from the beginning. In the beginning, there was supposedly nothing. It was darkness on the face of the deep. And the world was without form. And something we call God spoke. And then there was some sort of design, form, that came into being. Now, whatever name you want to give that, that source, that divine intelligence, that patterned intelligence, you know, that we refer to as God, that created all things, that created a pattern in all things. And we see that pattern in nature. And even Jesus points that out, that you, you can look out and you can see the weather patterns and you can see patterns in nature. And... But you cannot see the things of the kingdom, the patterns in the kingdom. Well, actually, when you're seeing those patterns, you are seeing the patterns in the kingdom. But you're seeing a representation of the patterns in the kingdom. Why Why the trees outside my window have leaves on them? <laughs> what, what are those leaves doing? And the sun is shining on them and chlorophyll is turning sunlight into energy. The original solar battery was, uh, or solar cell, was a leaf that absorbed the energy from the sun and turned it into other energy, other forms of energy. And, 
you know, it evaporates water and the water goes up and becomes rain and the rain comes down and washes through the mountains and somebody dams it up and they produce energy with the energy that the sun created by evaporating that water and making rain. So, all that is patterns. And they're all different patterns. But they're telling us how the universe works. And we see lots of examples of how the universe of life works on this planet. Because everywhere you look, there's life. I mean, under the Arctic Ocean, there's life. There's life in the soil. There's life above the soil. There's life out in the middle of the sea, at the bottom of the sea, where light can't hardly even get. There's life. Uh, But they go to other planets and they can't hardly find any life. Amazing. Amazing. (laughs) But anyway, so this law that created the universe or was created in the creation of the universe passes down to us and we call that the law of nature. And we look at nature and we try to, through right reason, hopefully come to a conclusion. I recently shared uh, with the ministers a video of an interview of a psychologist, uh, a professor of psychology, uh, on our page, uh, the, uh, what is it, mass formation. You look up mass formation psychosis at preparing you and you'll find some stuff written about this phrase, mass formation of psychosis. But I put the, a link to the video there on that page. And it's fascinating. This is a totally scientific guy. When he went into college, he was an atheist, didn't believe in God. But he, at, by the end of the interview, which is, you know, not extremely long as interviews go today, but very fascinating. It certainly fascinated Tucker Carlson. You could see him almost popping up out of his chair because he was fascinated with what this guy had to say. But... Uh, I thought it was interesting that he he points out that all these scientists, many of whom were also atheists, ended up, the more they studied science, I mean real science, not Fauci science, but real science, (laughs) the more they came to the conclusion that there is a personal God and that you will not understand nature without what he calls, uh, I think the term he used, resonance. An internal resonance with the truth. It has, you, you look at all the facts, but you only come to a conclusion based on the fact that this conclusion resonates in you. You don't get to it simply by logic, simply by reason. And you can study all kinds of guys like Kant and these other philosophers in the age of reason, like there was just some sort of age of reason between the 1700s, 1800s or whatever. Uh, the reality, you can go back to Aristotle and Plato, you can go back to Pythagoras or Polybius, and these guys were part of an age of reason too. <laughs> they, they were trying to figure out what's what. And they're using their reason. Almost all of them, at one point in their careers or in their writings, they come to the conclusion that you cannot get to understanding everything by reason alone. That you have to have this uh, resonance or what we would call, if we read the Bible, revelation. Or another word would be intuition. That somehow or other, something has to inspire you 
to see the whole truth other than rational thought. Now, it doesn't mean that the truth is not rational. The truth is rational, but you don't discover the truth simply by your own mind and reasoning. And, of course, this is the story we see almost immediately in Genesis of the tree of knowledge, that's the rational mind, and the tree of life, which is the spiritual mind. And the spiritual mind, because you you look at the Hebrew words and you get words like life or living things and soul and mind, they're often from the same Hebrew word, mind and soul. So the spiritual mind is the tree of life and the flesh mind, the logical mind, the technocratic mind, I think that's a word that's used by this psychologist, That's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And if you use that as your only source, you're going to be led astray. You're going going to be deceived. You're going to be confused. So here I am showing you all the branches of the tree of knowledge (laughs) so that you can understand the tree of life. But I'm not really doing that. And I've said this in the other recordings. I'm just saying a little bit different now. I'm showing you all the branches of the tree of knowledge, uh, the information, the facts, the inconvenient truths and facts, so that you can let go of the tree of knowledge and your personal logic and get into the realm of the tree of life, which is inspiration, revelation, resonance, spiritual intuition, whatever you want to call it. And so that's ultimately where we're trying to go. And if you focus on the Constitution as your salvation, or Caesar as your salvation, or Joe Biden as your salvation, uh, or FDR as your salvation, uh, you're going to miss the true Son of God and the Spirit of that Son of God, which should be dwelling in you. So, I'm not saying don't look at the Constitution, but do not believe that it is your salvation. And so, I've written about that a great deal. I've talked about that a great deal. That the uh, the constitutionalists can easily be deceived into thinking that the Consti- if we just get back to the Constitution, if we just elect uh, this president or that president, uh, we will be saved. We will be, things will be fixed. There won't be World War III. There won't be invasion of foreign troops. There won't be a collapse of the economy. But no, the problem today is not the three branches of government. The problem today is that fourth branch of government. Because we did not listen to Christ. We didn't listen to Lady Godiva either. (laughs) Which those of you who listen regularly know uh, uh, what Lady Godiva was all about. And those who don't, you can go read the article at preparing. <laughs> but, so, to be a constitutionalist, uh, many people, you know, they, they're just in love with the Constitution. They think that that is the answer to everything. But, uh, they, they actually even refer to it as a divinely inspired document. And they refer to it as God's special mandate. That's actually a quote where somebody refers to the Constitution as God's special mandate. Uh, or the, the the salvation of this nation. That's what made America great was the Constitution. 
Yet you can go read Alexis Tocqueville, and he says, no, that that wasn't what made America great. <laughs> As a matter of fact, people were almost totally independent of the government when Tocqueville was touring America in the early 1800s. They, they didn't look to the government. They, the, the government didn't provide health care. The government didn't provide social welfare. The, the government didn't even provide public school, public education, public health. Most of all of that was provided by the people. I mean, there was, like, public health officers in Massachusetts. You know, you know who the one, I think it was the first public health, if I'm, I'm remembering correctly, it's been a long time since I was studying this, but I think it was Paul Revere <laughs> was uh, one of the first public health officers. But he wasn't dictating to anybody that they had to get vaccinated. <laughs> I mean, there was smallpox back in those days. And there was, in Massachusetts, there was a, uh, I, I think it was in the municipality of Boston, that there was a mandate that you had to get vaccinated. And there was a guy who, Jacobson case, who opposed this. I, he didn't, he had been injured from a vaccine when he was in, I think, Norway, over there in the Scandinavian countries. And he didn't want to give it to himself again or to his children. Because he had been injured by it. And he took the case up and the Supreme Court ruled that they could mandate this vaccination. But it was only the municipality that was mandating it. It was a $5 fine if you didn't want to take it. So you just pay the $5 and you didn't have to take it. But it was because it was a municipality. Which again goes back to understanding law. Municipalities have... And you say, why is the Supreme Court ruling that a municipality can make this rule? Because a municipality is like a household. It's a small group. All he had to do is move out of town. <laughs> he did, He just could go to another town. It wasn't like you had to get a vaccination to live on the planet or to travel. That wasn't that they were ruling. It was just to live in that city township that you had to get a vaccination and they gave you a way out. You paid the $5 and you didn't have to get it again. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, but they use that case to try to uh, get the idea that everybody has to get it because the Supreme Court ruled that, uh, yeah, they can mandate, you know, vaccinations. Not so. And then what's a vaccination and is is you know there's all kinds of other factors. Is it tested? Is it proved? Is it is it does it work? Uh, does it have any validity in science? Uh, all these questions come up. But they they throw out these things, but people don't look into things with any kind of depth, and so they're very confused as to what's going on. But you have legal systems in municipalities. You have legal systems in counties. You have legal systems in states. You have legal systems in the United States, and then you have the natural law. <laughs> and how do you fall subject to the legal systems in the municipality? You move into the municipality, and you become a citizen of the municipality. And uh, 
boy, that's a whole can of worms which we're not going to open up as to what that does. But we are going to get into how the power and influence of the Constitution might increase and the nature of that original Constitution and its limitations. Because, again, the Constitution created three branches of government. And those three branches are the judiciary, which is based, you know, the judiciary is based on an architectonic act that was passed shortly after the Constitution, which is the Judiciary Act of uh, 1789, I think it is. You look up Judiciary Act, and we have a copy of it at Preparing You. You can read it over. And we, we cite some of the important clauses in that, which allows for equity, which is not really law, but it is a legal system within the law. used to be that when you made out uh, a contract or a deed or any kind of an agreement, you would put at the bottom of the agreement the phrase, Remedies at Law. And and I always thought that was interesting. Well, where would your remedies be? <laughs> at law, of course. Well, I didn't understand what they meant by remedies at law until I read at the bottom of some contracts way back when where it said remedies in equity. So you had this choice, you know, until they wrote it into the into the contract that your remedies for this contract were at law but for this contract over here, which might be the exact same contract, but now your remedies are not at law, but in equity. So you'd have to go over to courts of equity. And so now you have put yourself, or at least the terms of that contract, in equity by adding that phrase to the bottom of your contract. So now you know where the remedies are at. Well, we do that all the time. And when I wrote the book Covenants of the Gods... Small g gods. This is what I'm dealing with in the 15 chapters of that book. Is all the covenants that we make that move us from the natural law to the myriad of legal systems, whether municipal or equity or state or whatever. We do it by making agreements, either direct or indirect agreements, with body politics, with judicial systems because now you can look at body politics as in general or body politics on a limited basis having to do with the uh, legislative and executive branches of government while uh, the the, uh, judicial has to do with that other third branch of government so what is the fourth branch of government and and this I'll give you a a brief answer, but then this will become more specifically important to you when you start understanding the limitations of the original Constitution, which still exist. But the Constitution didn't move so much as you moved. <laughs> and the fourth branch of government was you. You were not created by the Constitution. You already pre-existed before the Constitution. You as an individual. When I say you, I mean you as an individual and all the other individuals out there in some sort of collective mass of individuals, if you can have a collective of individuals, which each individual is independent. That's the fourth branch of government. 
its rights did not come from the Constitution. Its rights came from its creator. Now, you were created, but you were also procreated. So your rights did not just come from God. They came from your parents. And this is a very important concept to realize. Because the Israelites went into bondage, made an agreement with Pharaoh that they would give the Pharaoh 20% of their labor in the future, one-fifth of their labor in the future, if he would give them benefits of food today so that they did not starve today. And they agreed to that. Tomorrow I will give you 20% of my labor if you give me food today. It's it's the wimpy philosophy. I think it's wimpy. Isn't it Popeye and wimpy, you know? Will you give me a nickel today for a hamburger today and I will pay you back tomorrow? <laughs> a violation of the Sabbath for those who are staying up to date as to what the Sabbath is. But that's what they did. They were willing to do that and they were put in a situation to do that because they were not ready for the famine when it came and they were not ready for the famine when it came because their one brother who had the divine spark and foresight and revelation that could have told them to prepare for the famine, they sold off into bondage. So since they put their brother into bondage, they went into bondage. So that principle is very important. Every one of you out there have to make sure that whatever you do, don't put your brother or your neighbor into bondage. Because if you decide to put your brother or neighbor into bondage, you will go into bondage. That's part of the law of nature. Because as you judge, so shall you be judged. Isn't that what Jesus said? He's telling you how it works. So, have you done anything to make a slave of your neighbor? To put your neighbor into bondage? Have you increased the burden of your neighbor in that bondage? You know, like the Pharaoh, theoretically, could only take one-fifth of your labor. How, how could he increase that if they're still under the same contract? How would he increase the burden of that bondage? You have to remember, all the gold was in the hands of the Pharaoh. So they were using something else besides gold and silver for money. There's no evidence of gold and silver coins for money during that period of time in Egypt. There is evidence that they had some sort of clay uh, coin or scarab that represented value. And they exchanged that. And, of course, there was barter. But... The gold and silver was not in the hands of the people. That had all gone out of their hands. It was when they were freed from the bondage of Egypt and cast out of Egypt. They left with a lot of gold and silver. But uh, they didn't use that as money. And of course, you don't use gold and silver as money today. You use something else. So if that's a stage to bondage, you've already passed that stage. <laughs> and now you're in a in one of the other stages, myriad of stages, we can, you can number them three stages of bondage or four stages of bondage, but it's, you know, it's a long journey and there's lots of steps to it. But you're the fourth branch of government and 
when Alexis Tocqueville toured the United States, he was seeing the fourth branch of government were gathering together in associations. If they saw they needed a hospital, they would gather together and build it. If they saw they needed a school, they would gather together and build it. They might call it a public school because they put it on land that was supposedly set aside for schools in each township. But it was built by the people, for the people, and of the efforts of the people. The teacher was hired by the the local students. Almost anybody could go to the school if they if they had money or not money, but you could even go to college if you had no money, if you could keep up the grades. Most of the colleges allowed you to go to those colleges without taking out a student loan. If you could keep up the grades, they wouldn't charge you tuition. And they would expect and they would hope but not based on contract. As an alumni, you would help fund the school. That's the way it used to be in a free nation. If you're not doing that, you're probably not in a free nation. So anyway, this is very important to understand this path to bondage. And we just covered several different aspects of that. And we will, we will cover more when we return to Keys to the Kingdom. Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. Uh, so the fourth branch of government is you. Uh, you're the government of the people, for the people, and by the people. And it is that government that uh, should be taking care of all the social welfare of the people through faith, hope, and charity. Because if you do it through men who exercise authority one over the other, you yourself will go back into bondage. If you make agreements that people will give you benefits before you paid for them, before, you know, a lot of people say, well, I paid in, so I have a right to them. Well, you paid into a common purse, a one purse, and the Bible has, uh, you know, reference to that in Proverbs. Uh, it has reference to eating the dainties of rulers. That's the benefits of rulers. That they're deceitful mates and they will put you into bondage. Uh, what should have been for your welfare, David says, shall become a snare. Paul quotes David and warns us of the same snare. The covetous practices that Peter talks about. Desiring benefits at the expense of your neighbor, at the expense of your brother. Trying to force your neighbor to take his labor, his house, his property, and provide you with free stuff. You're putting your neighbor into bondage. That's not what America was doing originally. They were gathering together and creating hospitals, schools, roads, fire departments through free will offerings. By taking care of one another through free will offerings. You would find some places, like in Massachusetts, where they actually took tax dollars and they actually funded, I think the Latin school was one of them. Uh, They took money to fund the Latin school, from tax dollars. But that was a very localized effort, and it was frowned upon by people like Horatio Bunce and other congressmen like uh, Davy Crockett. And I only mention them because we have an article up on Davy Crockett. Look that up at Preparing You and read that. So this is an important principle of early American freedom 
was that you paid as you went. You paid according to uh, what you thought was right. Every time you, if you thought there should be a free school in your community, a public school that everybody could go to, you took money out of your pocket and voted for that school with your votive offering. With, you know, you would go down and help build it. You would get lumber. You would donate lumber. I mean, they wanted to build a community center in a local little Paisley, and they didn't have a tax base to do it. But they had a lumber mill, <laughs> and they had lots of guys with hammers, and uh, they they put on feeds and collected money to organization to do this, to build this community center. And they got the lumber yard to donate lumber, and they got a lot of people to come down and donate their help, and they built the community center. That still existed. I mean, I was here when it did. I've, I've been on the roof, hailing <laughs> shingles, uh, because of the fact that uh, that's the way we still do it, because there's a lot of old school thinkers out here. But today, you're not going to get that. Today, you're going to say, well, just, we'll just put a levy on the taxes and we'll tax all our neighbors, whether they use the school or not, whether they send their kids to private school or not. We will tax all our neighbors, and if they don't want to pay for it, we'll take their house away from them. But we're Christians, because we're born again. And we believe in the Constitution, because we're patriots. We just do not believe in individual freedom. That's a that's a battle that's going on in the local community now. It's not a big battle, but, I mean, there are people that are making noise. There's somebody, you know, 15, 20 miles away from us that wants to put in an RV park. He has some land, and he wants to put in an RV park. He's kind of in a little picturesque area. And he wants to get permits for quite a few sites. I think like a hundred sites. He's not going to build a hundred sites, but he wants to, you go through the process, permitting process and everything, the land use process in Oregon. You only want to do it once. And you want to do it for as much as you can, but you have a period of time. You might even put in ten sites to start with, and then if you make money, then you might put in another ten, and eventually you might want to get up to a hundred sites. I'm not sure what the actual number is. But that's what his plan is. He doesn't have the money to put in all the sites that he wants to get, but he wants to get a permit. So he he notifies all of his neighbors through the process that this is what I want to do with the land that I own here in this Arrow Gap. And people 15, 20 miles away are opposing it. They said he shouldn't be able to do that. It's, a, it's legally an appropriate land use. He should just be able to notify people, this is what I want to do, and then do it. And it's reasonable, you know, I mean, even the Declaration of Independence recognized that if you're going to do something different, you need to notify the people in the world that this is going to affect, that I'm going to do something different here. You know, so, I mean, you could you could literally start a city in Oregon, municipality in Oregon, and you can make it a law that everybody has to drive on the other side of the road in our city, down these roads. I mean, we do it already with one-way roads. You know, you normally everywhere in Oregon, you drive on the right side. And if you're going the other way, you drive on the right side going the other way. So everybody drives on the right. Well, you can make a road that says, no, 
You can only go one way on this road. You can do that in a municipality. You can just create a one-way road. <laughs> what you can also do that we're going to do, everybody has to drive on the left side of this road. Now, nobody's dumb enough to try to do it because very few people have the coordination to suddenly change their steering wheel over. And you could be creating a hazard by making such a rule, which is why... They have these ordinances where, okay, I want to change the use of this land and I'm going to notify all my neighbors that I'm going to change the use of this land. They have a right to know because the usage you're changing it to might actually injure the next door neighbor. I want to put a nuclear power plant here. I want to build nuclear bombs here. <laughs> you know, well, I don't know, but, you know, because you might be creating a hazard. You know, what are you going to do with your waste? What are you going to do with uh, the other stuff that you're creating in this, uh, you know, this new venture you're having on your land? How is it going to affect your neighbors? So that's reasonable. But they want to take away his right to use the land in a, a, a what has been deemed a reasonable use of the land for hundreds of years. And they're so they're literally wanting to take away his property rights on the land. That they want to control his right to choose how to use his land. Not based on law, but based on their personal whim, their personal prejudice. Well, if you're willing to take away your neighbor's rights to get what you want, then your neighbor has a right to take away from you what you want. And that's gonna, that's gonna backfire on these people. Now he'll probably get it approved and he'll probably build it because it's, you know, they're making their complaint but they're not basing it on anything but their own personal whim on how he can use his property. And, you know, there was a guy in Lakeview. I don't know if he actually lived in the city of Lakeview but he was pretty close to the boundary of Lakeview. And he painted his house white and black. But not just like white with black trim or black with white trim. He painted it like his house was a gigantic dairy cow. <laughs> black spots like you see on a dairy cow and white like you see on a you know Holstein dairy cow. So he painted everything on his property like a Holstein dairy cow. <laughs> and there were people who were just livid. It was quite... It was well done. It was very, it was eye catching. That was for sure. He's kind of out, a little bit out of town, or at least appeared to be outside the city limits. But they wanted to force him to change that so it, it would be pleasing to what they thought he ought to paint his house at. I thought, like, you know, more power to him. It's his house. Let him paint it any way he wants. But a lot of people were very much against it and trying to figure out if we kind of make a rule that stops him from doing this. We had a, a, a lady, a widow lady, in local Paisley. She painted her house green and, and kind of orange. It was actually a pumpkin orange, fluorescent pumpkin orange. It it really stood out. And uh, and there were all kinds of mumbling in town of people like, oh, that's so terrible. It was on a back road of town, almost out of town, right on the border of town. But it was in town. And nobody ever made her actually change it. But you could see that spirit moving in the people that they wanted her to change the pumpkin house into a color that was more pleasing to their eyes. And it's, this is a little shack of a house. Uh 
and she was a wonderful lady, and she was a widow, and they were, and she just liked the colors, you know. That was kind of her personality. That was, and I thought, all right, she, there's a rebel. There's somebody who thinks outside the box. But other people, they did not like that. They wanted her to paint that house, <laughs> and and she had fields all the way around her. I mean, there was it wasn't like a subdivision where all of a sudden you come across this. It was. It was a pretty isolated little shack of a house, and she was raising her kids in the house, and, you know, more power to her. But other people want to take away her right to choose the color of her house. Can you imagine that? And they think they're Americans. Where did that come from? Well, it's been a long time in coming, and it it goes way back to the institution of forced attendance to public schools. You had to send your kids to a public school. You had to send your kids to a school. Of course, that's where a lot of private schools started up. And that was very localized. I think that was also in Massachusetts where (laughs) that started. But, uh, uh, and that was back in the 1800s. And I mean, people actually took up guns. They were not going to have this. Uh, you're You're not, the truant officer better come armed. Because most people until about 1910 in America were home taught or taught by private education. And like I said, most of the public education was provided by free will donations of the people helping build the public school, donating land to put the public school on. That was one of the mistakes I think Madison made is that... In surveying the land, which didn't give the government ownership to the land, but in surveying the land, they they had sections marked out or areas marked out in every township that was to be set aside for education. They could either build a school on it or sell it to build a school somewhere else or what have you. But uh, it, and basically, it was a suggestion because nobody had to build the school on that land, but. Uh, Both Madison and Jefferson had the idea that it was very important to build schools. And Jefferson tried to have a law passed twice in Virginia that compelled the building of school in every district of every county that was within walking distance of all the inhabitants. It never passed. And it wasn't funded by tax dollars. It was just saying that this is what we needed to do. There was no stipulation that you'd be fined if you didn't do it. He was just trying to make a statement that this is what we should do, and the people voted it down anyway. They said, because we're already doing it. Most of the schools were built by the militia. They would get together and build the schools. Because they all knew that education was important. And you also have to remember that the school was just a place where they went to to get the fundamentals. They still did most of their learning at home. Uh, and it was their parents and stuff like that. But, you know, some parents might be illiterate. There was more literacy in America than there was almost anywhere else in the world. Because you had to be literate to read the Bible, and reading the Bible was really important. But this idea of getting the government to force your neighbor to contribute to you what you want will lead to the idea that the government can force you not to do what you want. To please your neighbor. And basically it's an idea of taking away the rights of the individual to provide for 
what you want. And that that is what the brothers of Joseph did. They took away the freedom of Joseph to get their way, to get their power and control. And they went into bondage because of that, because they sold their brother into bondage. Every time you vote for a benefit at the expense at the expense of tax dollars, you're voting to enslave your neighbor. Somebody wrote that uh, that what what how did he put it? He said that voting was a crime. Well, it, it depends on what you're voting for, you know and. Today, unfortunately, most of the time, people are voting to take away the rights of their neighbor. To take away the money of their neighbor, to take away the rights, to have a business, to to elect men who will make mask mandates and jab mandates. And some people have said, well, no, we don't want that. We're going to vote for this guy who doesn't do that. But he's still operating by force. You're still empowering the government to do more and more. If you want to be a free nation, you have to empower the fourth branch of government, which means every individual in your community. Now, to follow this up with what Christ was teaching, you can't just say you're for freedom. You have to take on the responsibility of freedom, which is taken on by pure religion. You have to take care of the needy of your society, the needy in your community, through faith, hope, and charity, through volunteerism, through caring for one another. And this is what the church was. The church was a way in which to organize the people in a manner in which they could take care of the needy of society through free will offerings. If you're not working daily to do that, you will not be free no matter if you believe in the Constitution or not. You simply will not be free. It's written in the law of nature because you're still willing to take away the right of your neighbor to provide you with benefits that you want today. You're willing to borrow against the future of your neighbor based on what we're doing today because almost all government programs are based on borrowing. You're only paying taxes to pay the interest on the money that you borrowed. It's very hard to find a county even that is actually fiscally responsible. And, you know, even though the county I happen to live in is probably more fiscally responsible than most, they're still heavily dependent upon the state governments to give them money. This is what they do. They create income tax. They create, you know, state income tax or what have you. And they tax the people and they say, now you want money back. You can apply to the state for it. But when you apply to the state for that money back, you get the power of the state to dictate to you how you can spend that money. So if you want your rights back, this way it sums this all up. If you want your rights back, You have to take your responsibilities back. And this is what Christ was telling the people when he was preaching the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's what John the Baptist was telling the people when he offered them the baptism of John the Baptist. And they said, okay, we get we get all wet because we go down the Jordan River and you dunk us in this water. And what does that mean? Well, 
you have to understand what rabbinical baptism is. We have an article up on rabbinical baptism. We also might have to understand what the baptism of Herod was. Because Herod was sending out missionaries to baptize people all over the Roman Empire. Because remember what we said at the beginning of the program. That's how we tie everything together. Lots of rabbit trails, but we're always coming back to the, the line, the important things. He's sending out missionaries to baptize Jews into his version of the kingdom of heaven. And when you got baptized by Herod's ministers, you signed up. You registered with Herod's system of the kingdom of heaven. Just like, you know, Caesar was the son of God. Caesar was a savior. Herod was offering salvation through his system of baptism. He had, it was a form of rabbinical baptism through the Pharisees, because the Pharisees were allied with Herod in doing this. And you were registered. Now, there would be Gabbai and Molkai uh, ministers who come by, scribes, who come by and tax you on what you produce. Just like Pharaoh. Got 20% of your labor belongs to us. Okay, you went out and fished all day. 20% of your catch belongs to us. 20% of your wheat crop belongs to us. And we're, we're going to come out, we're going to pace off your wheat field in advance of harvest. Estimate how much you're going to harvest from this. And we will expect bags of grain at the harvest season. Because we can't be everywhere in the harvest season. But we've already measured your fields. And we know what you're likely to produce. And we will expect to see those bags delivered to the local synagogues and temples and it will be all registered by the scribes who are accountants. That's what scribes means. People who keep accounts of your contribution. It's not a free will contribution anymore. I mean, it was free will in the sense that you signed up. But now it's no longer free will. The right to command those donations is now in the hands of government. It's not in the hands of the fourth branch of government, the people. It's now in the hands of the Gabbai and Molokai and Pharisees and Herod. They're going to collect what you owe. And they will determine what you owe based on the statutes that they pass. And some of those statutes actually stem back to the Sanhedrin. Even though we've talked about, you read our article on Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin was never a legislature creating new laws. It was... It was a group of men to help you show, because they were supposedly men of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit, intuitive men, who were trying to explain to you what the law of God was, what the Torah was. And like I say, the, the Essenes had people explaining the Torah, and they operated almost, they took care of all their social welfare through charity. Uh, but others took care of, you know, Herod didn't do it through charity. He did it through what you would call today or what Alexis Tocqueville called legal charity. Bound charity. Charity where you had to donate. You had to give to the people according to the will of government. So now the branches of government, whatever, I mean, you had Herod. That was a branch of government. He was the chief executive officer of Judea. 
And then you had the Sanhedrin. That was the legislature at that time. It wasn't supposed to be, but it had become that way. And we tell you that in the article on Sanhedrin. And so that's the legislative branch of government of Judea at that particular time. And then you had representatives through your synagogues. Uh, and they would, the synagogues were ten families. And they would elect a minister, and that minister would get together with nine other ministers, and they would elect a minister, and eventually they would get up to the high priests, who, who would, uh, to the, the heads of the different tribes, and, and then they would pick the high priest for a particular month, usually a high priest at one time, his, his, uh, his reign as high priest was only lasted a month, and then somebody else took the the at the time of Jesus Christ, I believe that this was going on for a lot longer because uh, Caiaphas was clearly high priest for more than a month. but these are all changes that they implemented, probably through their sanhedrin legislation <laughs> but uh anyway that's Judea was a government. It was a government of the people, for the people, and by the people. But it was a people who actually coveted their neighbor's goods. It was a people who were actually willing to force their neighbor to contribute to what they wanted. It was a a, a government not based on faith, but based on allegiance. That was established by your registration with the temples that Herod built. He built the temple of Jerusalem and he built the temple of Rome. And if you were a Jew all the way over in Rome, you might be registered with Herod's temple in Israel. But you live in Rome. Well, they have synagogues in Rome and so they had the tens, hundreds and thousands in Rome as well. And there were all kinds of Jews in Rome. At least until Claudius kicked about 14,000 families out of Rome, which is actually really a lot of people. Uh, it was a sizable portion of Jews living in Rome. But they were Jews that had followed Christ because they were the one that was causing this disruption. Now, I don't know. He might have kicked out all Jews, whether they followed Christ or not, because they were battling amongst themselves, arguing amongst themselves as to who was the rightful king of Judea. There was no king in Judea at that time but Jesus Christ. No one ever sat on the throne in Judea again since the days of Christ. Uh, now, they're actually talking about... <laughs> they're actually. I saw a story where they're actually shipped several red heifers that qualified to be red heifers to start up the daily sacrifice, which is nonsense. Absolute, utter nonsense. Uh, if you read the Torah, as Christ would read it, as the Essenes would read it. But if you read it the way the, the Pharisees read it, you might think that, yeah, we need to sacrifice red heifers. But if you go read our article on red heifer, also at Preparing You, you'll see that that these guys have no idea, no concept whatsoever of what the Torah says. They have misinterpreted. They're under a strong delusion. And, and I'm not picking on them. I'm just pointing it out. And we have the reason. If you want to debate that, you want to come on and, and talk uh, with me about it, uh, read the article and then get a hold of us. But this is what we're sh- trying to show you, that the Bible was the book 
for the government of the people, for the people, and by the people, where the power of choice, the exousia of choice, the original right to choose, as Paul would call it, was still in the hands of the people. It, and that's a free nation. And that's what the Christians were. They were a free nation. And they lived all over the Roman Empire. And they were free. And people didn't like that. And they persecuted them. But they survived the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Which is where you need to want to go. When we come back, we'll tell you more about that. Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. And so, if you want to be the fourth branch of government to a free government, you have to start doing what Christ said. You have to start doing what John the Baptist said. That, that if you have two coats and your neighbor has none, uh, assuming at least start with those people who gather together seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, you may extend that charity out to other people outside of your congregation. But that's evangelism. That That's spreading the word to other people. The word being the logos, the truth of Christ. You cannot become a free people as long as you don't want your neighbor to be free as much as you want to be free. You have to love your neighbor's freedom, your neighbor's rights, your neighbor's children as much as you love your own. Or you will not be free. Constitution, no constitution. Now, when we get into the constitution a little bit more, and we have done this, I've written a whole book on contracts coming as the constitution, you'll see that the constitution itself was supposed to have, according to the biblical teachings, for those of you who think that it's an inspired document of God, then why doesn't it have the four or five elements of what the Bible says should be in a constitution? If you want to have a man who can exercise authority one over the other. Because it says you can have a king, a chief executive officer, a prime minister, a president. You can have that if you want it. God does not take that choice away. But he warns you that if you want to have a chief executive officer, or even a legislature, you want to divide, you think there's protection in dividing the government up into three branches. Well, Rome did that. <laughs> and a lot of other countries done that, and they ended up collapsing and falling. So it's it's a good idea to divide if you're going to have a government like that to divide it up into three branches. But it's a better idea to include the five elements that the Bible tells you to put in a constitution to protect the rights of the people. Those five elements are not present in the Constitution of the United States. And we write about it in Contracts, Covenants, and Constitution, which you can get, you know, a copy free online. You can look up Deuteronomy 17, 16. We have links to that. We have the whole Bible on preparing you so that you can go type in Deuteronomy 17 and... And read what we have to say there, and it'll link you to other articles and and the book, etc., etc., and you can see for yourself. What are the five elements of a constitution 
four of which are not in the Constitution of the United States. If that was a divinely inspired document, those four elements would be present in there. The problem, though, is not that they're not present in there. Because, like I said, the people were not a party to the Constitution. We, the people, refer to the names at the bottom of the page. And eventually, those who took oaths to be senators and congressmen and employees of the United States, they took an oath to abide by the Constitution. And that made the Constitution law for them. You see, because they took the oath. So that's how it became law in America, was that the people that you elected went and took oaths that they would abide by the Constitution. That is the nature of legal systems. If you agree to the rules, you know, if you want to enter into this city and become a citizen of this city and get the benefits of this city, you have to agree to the rules of this city. And if that city is a democracy, like Athens was, then you have to abide by the majority rule. Somebody says that, you know, the, well, you know, it's been attributed that Jefferson said a democracy is where 51% of the people could take away the rights of the other 49. That's not the case in a republic. But that is the case in a democracy. And a republic is not just an indirect democracy, but we have articles, go read the articles on a republic. In a republic, the leaders are titular. That means the vote of the 51% of the people are titular too. They can agree on certain things and implement certain things, but if those certain things take away the rights of the individual, then they're null and void from the beginning. They're not, they're not valid law. And the Supreme Court has ruled this over and over again. But if the individual decides that it's okay to take away from my neighbor to get what I want, then it's okay for my neighbor to take away from me to get what it he wants or she wants. You see, as you judge, so shall you be judged. And for the last 200 years, we've been steadily moving from a republic to an indirect democracy, and finally, to now they want to go to an absolute total democracy, do away with the electoral college, and just have it, you know, that we have a majority vote, <laughs> and not even considering who's counting the vote, and 51% of the people can take away the rights of the other 49. And unfortunately, this leads to death, and it leads to destruction. It's the common purse of rights that Proverbs talks about. That runs towards death. But, you know, most people aren't going to take the time to find this out. Those of you who are continually listening to the keys of the kingdom, you have a chance to begin to understand how this works. And what the Bible is really talking about. Because you say, well, I believe in Jesus. But Jesus says, it's not those who say, I believe in Jesus. But those who do it the will of the Father. And doing the will of the Father is not cursing your children with that. Doing the will of the Father does not include coveting your neighbor's goods or coveting your neighbor's rights or coveting your neighbor's property where I can have free stuff if I'm allowed to take away from my neighbor. And I've had people say, well, this is how we do it today in America, that we have public schools and we have tax rolls and... and we take away the right of our neighbor, <laughs> the property of our neighbor, in order to fund the school. 
And we force our neighbor to contribute to the school. And this is the way we do it. Well, it's the way you do it now. It wasn't the way you did it in early America, and that's why we give you the facts of how they did it in early America, so that you can have the facts that might pry you away from what you have now become accustomed to, because you have become accustomed to getting your child's education at the expense of others. The same as you become accustomed to obtain your livelihood at the cost of the livelihood of others. By taking away from others, you get benefits. The dainties of rulers who exercise authority. Christ was teaching a completely different form of government. You do it through love. John the Baptist said, do it through, not through force, but through love. Where you share through charity. Not legal charity, bound charity, forced charity, but the charity of love. You could have done that under the Constitution of the United States. So the problem is not the Constitution of the United States. The solution is not the Constitution of the United States. And a lot of people say we've got to return to the Constitution of the United States. Well, because it doesn't give them any power to do this. It doesn't give them any power. It specifies these are the powers of government. That's all they get. But it doesn't have the power of contract. We should go back to the Judiciary Act of 1789. That your remedies could be inequity. And there, you know, and, and it goes back, you know, I talked in previous shows just recently as a part of this Torah thing, jury nullification. Jury nullification was not only a right, but a duty where you could, you as a jury of 12 men and women, originally it was 12 men, but now it's 12 men and women, which is fine. Same basic laws apply. They could nullify the statutes of the legislature. There was more power in the jury to nullify the power of the legislature than there was in the legislature. They could overrule the legislature and say, yes, he violated this statute, but in this case, we... Find him not guilty. Yes, he is guilty of violating the statute. But the statute is guilty of injustice. So therefore, we take away the statute. And we set the captive free. You could do that with jury nullification. Which according to the Supreme Court was not only a right but a responsibility. According to Supreme Court justices. According to presidents of the United States. According to many of the constitutional. I think over half of the constitutions. State constitutions include the right of jury nullification. But you don't have that in your courts. Because you're not at law. You've left the building. (laughs) A freedom. Because you were willing to take away the freedom of your neighbor. And it started with public school. It's moved on to Social Security. It's moved on to Medicare, Medicaid. It's moved on to your fire departments. It's moved on to your police forces. Where you're willing to force your neighbor to contribute to what you want. And take away the right of your neighbor. So that you can have free stuff. So that you can be socially secure. But you have sold your inalienable rights for your alienable privileges. And I say alienable privileges because the whole nation is in debt. 
And, and we're not in debt to the United States government. We're in debt to somebody else. <laughs> it doesn't really matter who. Traveling merchants of the earth or whatever you want to call them. You're in debt. And you, you're you not going to pay that debt. You can revolt all you want, but the debt still stands. Like I, I pointed this out. So that I give you all these pieces of the puzzle. And I lay them out. And I have to lay them out again and again so that you start seeing how this all fits together. That... You've been taking away the rights of your neighbor and you have forfeited your rights. You've taken away the rights of your brother and so now you're forfeiting your rights. And it's not the Constitution, it's the contract clause, which is why I say, you know, they had contracts, remedy at law, remedy and equity. And in my articles and letters that I share uh, at preparing you on jury, you can look that up where I quote the letters to the judges and to the courts that I was writing to, I was setting them up so I could show you how this works. Because as a juror today, if you're sitting on a jury almost anywhere in the United States, you've, you've waived your right through this process to jury nullification. You waived it so that you could sit on that jury. They knew when they called me for jury duty, somebody figured it out. <laughs> That I wasn't going to waive that right. And so then they, they went to great pains to relieve me of the responsibility of being on that jury because I knew it was an administrative court. It wasn't a court of law. It was an administrative. It looks like a court of law. It, it talks a lot like a court of law. It even sometimes walks like a court of law, but it's an administrative court. And in the administrative court, you don't have the right to decide fact and law. The legislature and that judge working together, not as separate branches, but as one branch in equity, are going to determine fact and law. So there's so many different aspects to this. There's so many different levels upon which your bondage is, you know, you're not just bound by one chain. You're bound by many chains. But they're all broken if you actually return to the ways of Christ. So what do the ways of Christ look like? The ways of Christ is that you become that fourth branch of government. You you do not waive your right as an individual. You maintain your right as an individual. The, the right to choose remains with you. 100% the right to choose remains with you in the kingdom of God. But you gather together by choice with nine other men of your choosing. And you decide what you think needs to be done, what you think doesn't need to be done. And then you volunteer how much you want to contribute to what needs to be done. And you you never take away the rights of your individual. And so how does that operate as a government? Well, it has to be a free will offering. For one thing, if you if you think we need to build a school, one-room schoolhouse in your community, where the kids will all gather and they will find out what each other is learning and somebody will kind of guide them, then they'll go back home and they'll do their studies. I just heard a story, a little anecdote to put in. A Christian school in America sent the kids, I guess seven-year-olds, it'd be like first, second grade, must be second grade, very young kids, I might have been a nine-year-old, but I think it was very young kids. Sent them home with a reading assignment. 
and the reading assignment was that they were to read their reading assignment in the bathtub and take pictures of themselves in the bathtub and bring them back to school. (laughs) This was their assignment in a Christian school. And one of the kids was not comfortable with this. Now, I saw the highlights of this assignment, and that's basically what the highlights of the assignment said. And the parents that were paying the tuition at this Christian school objected. They said, we don't think this is appropriate. We don't think she should. this should be her assignment, that she should take pictures of herself in the tub reading her assignment. She doesn't feel comfortable with it, and we don't feel comfortable, and we don't think it's appropriate. The response from the administration of the school is that we have been sending children home with this assignment for years, years, and you're the first people that objected to this assignment. Now, supposedly, when they expound upon this, oh, you can be wearing your pajamas, you're not necessarily sitting in water, you're just in the tub and you're taking a picture of yourself, reading, you know, have fun with it, whatever you want to do. Now, that, it's a recipe for disaster because they may not all be wearing their pajamas. <laughs> I don't know. They they may Usually when you get in the tub, there's water in the tub and they wouldn't want to get into the tub with their pajamas. So I, don't, I haven't seen the pictures that other kids have been doing for years, but I can see it's a recipe for disaster. But it doesn't even matter if the parents don't want that assignment for their child. The choice is with them. So they are voicing that they don't want the child to be required to perform this particular assignment. That should be the end of it. Uh, I mean, it should never have got to that point, but the school should say, well, we respect your right to choose. Because we, we know that your right to choose what is good for your children was given to you by God, and we will not interfere with your right to choose. That's, that would be the end of it. You know, they they might want to discuss this assignment where it came from and take a look at what are are the pictures you've been getting. But that's not what the school administration did. They wrote the parents and said that they would recommend that the parents withdraw their child from the school, voluntarily withdraw their child from the school. Well, they didn't want to do that. They said at this time, we do not want to withdraw our child from the school. We just don't want her to be required to fulfill this assignment because she's uncomfortable with it and we're uncomfortable with it. So you would think the school would say, okay. But no. The school administration began formal proceedings to withdraw the parents from the school. In other words, kick the child out of school. She can't come to school anymore at this Christian school. I'm making quotes with my hands here. It's astounding. How how did they get to this point? <laughs> it's not a Christian school. It's not a Christian administration. Now, we could take that farther and farther, but just on the basic surface of this, that's not a Christian school because they don't respect the rights of the parents. And Christians would respect the rights of the parents. I mean, it's just automatic because those rights of the parents were endowed to them by God. And what does the school have a right to take away those rights? I mean, you shouldn't even need to explain this, but evidently you do in a lot of schools. You have to do this in a lot of churches where the pastor is exercising authority. 
But the real problem with the modern pastors is that if there's a need in your congregation, a widow, an orphan, an old woman, an old man, who, uh, an injured individual who needs help, they send them to the men who exercise authority one over the other. They do not take care of the needy of their congregations through pure religion unspotted by the constitutional orders and systems of government. They send them to the governments of the world to take care of them. And almost every church does this. few Amish churches do not. (laughs) Probably some others. But they're well into the minority. But, so they were going to kick this this family so they couldn't send their kids to school anymore. Because they didn't feel comfortable with that assignment of having their child reading in the bathtub. Uh, whatever made them comfortable. They weren't comfortable with allowing the parents to choose. <laughs> they kicked them out. <laughs> but that's just an example. But I gave you several examples of what the modern church does that the first century church would rather die than do. They would not sign up for the government welfare through go- the government of Rome. And they were cast out of Rome because they would not sign up. They were persecuted. They were actually put to death because they would not sign up for the welfare of the Roman, you know, the free bread of Rome. Modern church does. So the modern church, when I use the word modern church, I'm not talking about the church established by Jesus Christ. I'm talking about the church established by Constantine. Because Constantine church even though they were told that they were going to have to start taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. And that they were going to need to register with their local congregation and churches through baptism. That's what it was, is registering that we're part of your church. And now that church is going to be supported mostly by free will offerings. The Church of Constantine was also, by historical record, Supported by millions and millions of dollars in contributions that came from Constantine, who had the money to do it because he killed his partners, killed their family, and absconded with all the wealth of their family. I think it was it Linus, was that his name? And killed a lot of other people besides. I mean, he'd wipe out whole cities, 10,000 people. Well, who gets all that land? Constantine. What is, what's he going to do with all that land, with all that city that he killed everybody in? He's going to give it to all the people that support Constantine. <laughs> Including all the churches that say, Constantine is the bishop of bishops. Somebody posted on Facebook. He says, it's amazing today we have overseers or bishops, same word in the Greek, that are not from the even living in the same state as the congregants. Well, of course, in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, each minister of ministers is an overseer of those that those ministers minister to. He's not a ruler. He doesn't exercise authority. But he helps bind the people together with the only tool he has at his disposal, which is love, free will choice. He doesn't bind them together with contracts. He doesn't bind them together with allegiance. He binds them together with love. He, if if there's a need in this congregation that's bigger than this congregation can provide, they let their 
the minister of that congregation lets his minister know, who is the overseer, and he lets the other nine know. Well, he might be in the same state, but he might be in a different state, because if it's still not enough, that overseer can let his minister know, which is the overseer of overseers, because it, it's a network. Now, people don't think in these terms too much. They think in government is somebody up there I elected and he's going to take away from my neighbor so that I can have stuff for free. He's going to take care of my flood insurance. He's going to take care of my student loan. He's going to take care of my old age because uh, my kids aren't going to help me out. They're not going to take care of me. So I need the government to take care of me. Because I didn't take care of my kids. I sent them to public school and forced my neighbor to pay for his public school. So why not force my neighbor to pay for his student loans? <laughs> I mean, you've gone down this road so far, you can't even see your way back to the kingdom. But you can change that with this mysterious thing called repentance. Which is not being sorry, although you might be sorry. But repentance is thinking differently. It's thinking like, we need to come together. And start taking care of one another. As if we loved our neighbor. Wow. What an idea. That we actually love our neighbor. We don't covet his goods. We don't send men to his house to force him to contribute to what we want for free. We actually care about our neighbor. We care about his rights. We care about his children. We care about his grandchildren. We care about his property rights. We care about... His inalienable rights. And we don't want to put a lien on them. Even though there is a lien on us. (laughs) We forgive that. So that we may be forgiven. So anyway, that's the basics. Uh, If you want to know more, join the network uh, at preparingyou.com or hisholychurch.org. Until then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.